Hello and welcome to some time around scripture today. I'm so glad that you've invited me into your home. Thank you for inviting the people and the leadership teams of First Christian Church into your life. We count it a privilege to be with you today. My approach to our time together today is going to be a little bit different. Namely, I want to tell you two stories and give you two observations. One story is 3,000 years old. The other story, you'll be pleased or interested to know, is still take, it's still taking place right now. And I want us to start with uh, scripture telling the story that's 3,000 years old. We'll look at that a little bit. We'll have some observations in there. We'll go on from there. So I invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, an event that occurs more than 3,000 years ago, but basically 1,000 BC, you could say, before Jesus is on this earth. And here's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And off they go. They destroyed the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah. But David, doing something that kings didn't usually do in the spring, he remained back in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. By the way, the Bible doesn't often use the word very. So she must have been a sight to behold, I guess. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone out to find out about her, and the man said, well, here's who she is. You might want to know this, David. She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from a monthly uncleanness. That's why she was bathing on the roof. Then she went back to her home. The woman conceived and sent word to David. Oh, we've got a problem, king. I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Remember, Joab's leading the army. And he says, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him about how Joab was, how the soldiers were doing, and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But he didn't go down to the house. Instead, he slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and didn't go down to his house. Well, David was hoping he'd go home and there'd be some, some wonderful moments, if you will, between a husband and wife as a husband comes back from war. But here you have the king committing a sexual sin, adultery. In the middle of the story here, believe me, it gets worse. The middle of the story presents a significant dilemma. His lover, Bathsheba, is pregnant. And her husband is not around, so everybody's going to know what's going, going on. The husband's off at war. The people of that day could count to nine months just as we can 3,000 years later. David had a significant problem. And so he came up with a solution. Hey, I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring the husband back, and hopefully people will just put two and two together and come up with four when he really knows that's not going to happen. But beginning in verse 12, uh, David says to Uriah, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He didn't go home. He's not gone home to be with his wife, and David knows there's going to be a situation. So here was his solution. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, Joab's, if you will, the general with the armies, and he sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. 
then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So David has made his problem worse. He's had an affair. An unplanned pregnancy is about to be discovered. And now to try and cover it up, he's committed murder by proxy. What brought him to this mess, do you think? I mean, prior to this, David, from the earliest days when he was a young, young man, he had a stellar record right up until this moment. When he became king, his reign brought his nation to the height of its history. The politics, the military, the economy, it was all up and to the right. But our story today is an epic tale of tragedy and sin. And as Chuck Swindoll has stated, the Bible never flatters its heroes. All the men and women of scripture have feet of clay. And when the Holy Spirit paints a portrait of their lives, he's a very realistic artist. He doesn't ignore, deny, or overlook the dark side. Now, as we think about this today, I want you to understand that we are not examining the life of some wild rebel or some sexual pervert. No, this is an ordinary fellow who fell into a period of sin, and that sin had devastating consequences for his family, for his reign, and for his nation. And I'm aware of this, that sin always bears consequences. So I would like to, if I may, get you to imagine this scene with me. At this point in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is probably about 50 years old, and we find him in this elegantly furnished bedchamber, his bedroom, if you will. Perhaps it was lavishly appointed with richly woven draperies covering the wall, ornately carved wood framing the windows. It's spring, the rainy season is over, and warm breezes are blowing across Jerusalem. It's a wonderful time to be there. The drapes are billowing as they hang over his open windows. And stars are beginning to twinkle brightly in, this, in the clear skies above. And it's a warm, lovely Jerusalem evening in the springtime, just after sunset. We read it in verse 1 when it said, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, the general. He sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the places. They destroyed the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah. But David remained back in Jerusalem. David was in bed, not in battle. Had he been where he should have been, where he belonged, where his troops were, there would never have been the Bathsheba episode. And I'm mindful that our greatest battles don't usually come when we're working hard. Don't they often come when we have some leisure, when we've got time on our hands, when we're bored? That's when we can make those fateful decisions that come back to haunt us. And that's where David was, indulging himself beyond the boundaries of wisdom. As king, as the, as the commander of the army, he belonged in the battle. Instead, he was in his bedroom. And I think you know what, you, you probably know how it went. He pushes the bed spared back, covers are gone, he stretches himself, he yawns a couple times, he sighs, and he looks around the room. Hmm. Certainly didn't feel the need for any more sleep. He wasn't suffering the exhaustion of a busy, productive man. 
He was tired from not being tired. He can get inside his head, perhaps I need to take a walk. It looks like a, it looks like a, a nice night to be out in the air. So he shoves aside the drapes and steps out into the roof. We know that Eastern monarchs frequently built their bedrooms on the second story of the palace and had a door that opened onto what we would probably call a patio roof. It was usually elegantly furnished and a place to sit with the family or perhaps the men of council and was always situated above the public demands and away from the streets and that's where David found himself on that long unforgettable night. We read that he walked around the roof of the king's house. It's a large home. He's enjoying the sights and the sounds, and in the distance, he hears some splashing. Perhaps he can hear the sound of someone humming and discovers the humming is coming from the lips of this very beautiful woman living just beyond the palace, within clear sight of his own backyard. He reads this, I mean the verse, the Bible reads it this way. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. You're probably saying right now, why are we examining this story? Because I thought we were in a, a series based on the Psalms. Well, that story is the background to the Psalm that we're going to focus on in today's message. We have been examining Psalms for a number of weeks, and I would remind you that if you'd like to continue on this week with our reading plan, you can find that available at firstdecatur.org. That's F-I-R-S-T decatur.org. Go there to read along yet even this week. Because what we're going to see today in the psalm we're about to look at, we're going to see the conclusion to David's story. It's a sordid story, and it's found in one of the psalms. As a matter of fact, see, coming out of this particular event in David's life, after the affair, after the murder, after the baby was born and everyone realized what had taken place, David recognized his sin. It's a long story, but it culminates in Psalm chapter 51, where David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and only you have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. And so God, based on the terrible things I've done, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed May they rejoice. May things turn around, in other words. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. God, can you erase the list of my sins? Create in me a clean heart or a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What does David want? He wants what we need and what we want. He wants forgiveness, mercy. He wants grace. He knows his sins are right there. It, it's a list, if you will, that he could make. It's certainly one he's got in his head, and it's what you and I face at times too. It's what we want and what we need, forgiveness, mercy, grace. And our sin, whether it be far greater than David's or far less, 
We want forgiveness. You're probably like David. You've got a list of what you've done wrong, and at least in terms of what you remember. I mean, I remember particular sins, but I'm quite aware there are sins that I've long forgotten. But here's a tremendous observation from David's story. It's really good news. God forgives. That is the observation of the greatest import today. God forgives. It's one reason why our church has a practice of regular communion, and why it's so important to us. We remember in communion, we remember Jesus' death on our behalf, when we remember that forgiveness from God is available through Jesus Christ. So in the next few minutes, I invite you to um, join with me in preparing communion. And as we do that, uh, we're going to step away from this set here, and we're going to Introduce, if you will, communion from a different spot this week. I want you to watch in the next few minutes as you're preparing communion. Join with me in echoing David's plea for mercy and grace and forgiveness and recognize that it's available from our forgiving God through Jesus Christ. So we've just been uh, learning about this horrid story about David's life. And he comes before God, Psalm 51, he says, I've really messed up. Uh, the, the, the struggles that I've brought into my own life and the life of my family, it, it's, it's beyond, the list is beyond too much, God. Would you forgive me? And we've learned that God forgives. And it's so wonderful that God forgives within the context of Jesus Christ dying for us. You know, this is a Memorial Day weekend. Right behind me is the small memorial, it's, it, compared to others. It's for our little village where Leslie and I live in Forsyth. It, it has the names of the people from our village who've died in various wars. It goes all the way back to World War I, with some of those names listed that are from the most recent wars of the 21st century. And it's the way in which our village says, hey, we thank God for these men and women who are memorialized here who died so that we could have the freedoms that we have. And on Memorial Day weekend, we remember that. And it's really important that we remember the liberties that we have as Americans to, um, to live the lives we live based on the, their sacrifices. And I appreciate more, I don't think any of us have words to describe what, that's, what that must have been like for those families, uh, for the way in which it's impacted us. And I'm thanking God for that in this moment. But beyond that, in the context of David's story, we realize that God, through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, forgives us completely. Now, some people say, you know, Calvary's a long way off. I don't know how it ever get there. You know, what's interesting, and from where I'm standing right now, I can see my house. It's about two blocks that way, and it's looking through the trees there. I can see it's a yellow house just right over there. And um, that's how close Calvary is, friends right here in front of you. It's not some 2,000 years ago. It's not for other people who are years ago or who don't, don't fit your profile. Calvary is as close as right here. The story of Jesus' death is as close as right here. And so I'd invite you to remember Jesus' death that brings us forgiveness from God. Remember that story with me. Remember his impact upon our lives. Just as we remember the deaths of these men and women and how that impacts our American history, Jesus' death impacts human's history, impacts my history, impacts your history. So take a piece of bread, take, take a cup, 
eat and drink. I'm going to pray for us, and then I invite you to eat and drink. While you watch what's about to take place on your screen, there's going to be some music and there's going to be some, um, some artistic ways of expressing what we've already looked at here in Psalm 51. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for uh, the men and women who've died in service to our nation of the past, literally thousands upon thousands. This Memorial Day weekend, we remember that. Lord, without diminishing that in any way, we also remember the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, that not only provides us, um, if you will, the ability to think and the ability to live our lives the way in which you want us to live. Most of all, it provides us with forgiveness, complete freedom in forgiveness. And for that, Lord, we thank you. We eat and we drink today in remembrance of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
We've heard one story, right? The story of David's horrendous wrongdoing. I mean, the sexual affair is one thing, but then to murder the husband for a cover-up, it's unbelievable. I mean, the list needed to be erased of the things that he did. That's why he writes Psalm 51, Lord, I need you. It's the same thing for us that we need to have, if you will, our list erased. Remember I said that uh, I was going to tell you two stories and give you two observations? We've had one story, David's sin. We've seen the first observation, God forgives. That, that, that means that your list of sins, it's wiped out, it's forgiven, it's gone. The heat of graceful salvation has obliterated your mess of the past and the present. But notice what David says next, though. After his plea for his divine grace. Let's start again where he pleads for grace and for a new life before God. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then based on all of that, this is what I'll do. He says, then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Look again at what verse 13 it says. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. So here, what do we have here? We have David asking for forgiveness. And then based on that divine grace, he steps into mission. It's powerful. Here's the observation from David's story, a second observation, if you will, that forgiveness leads to, mi to mission. He will go from, Lord, I'm asking for forgiveness to, now that I have that, I'm going to teach and I'm going to lead. You know, friend, when we receive divine grace and forgiven, forgiveness, we, we step into a new mission process. And God's forgiveness is given through grace. We don't, we don't do anything to receive it. But at that moment, we shouldn't receive it in a vacuum either. In other words, we should live it out. We should walk it out in service and mission. Here's what I mean. When we started our time together, I told you that we we're going to do two stories and two observations. And you probably expected story, observation, story, observation. Well, we've changed it up just a bit. We had David's story with an observation. And now you've just heard the second observation, indicating that sin's forgiveness leads to mission. In other words, I've given you the, um, if you will, the observation before the story. And so here's the story. The story beyond David's forgiveness leading to mission. Instead of David's story, I would like you to uh, learn of a contemporary narrative with the same focus. The story that you're about to uh, see and hear, it focuses on a longtime friend that Leslie and I have from our college days, from our music traveling literally around the world. He, Patrick traveled with us. His name is Patrick Dow. After we left the road and I went into pastoral ministry, uh, Patrick uh, married into a, fam a family that is quite famous in Christian circles. And he's going to tell you the story of, a, first of all, a tremendous conversion to Christ, forgiveness. But then coming out of that forgiveness, a tremendous lifelong mission. I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Patrick Dow. So First Christian Church, I'd like to introduce you to a dear friend of mine. Uh, Patrick Dow and I go back to college days. Uh, I remember leading worship from the piano in our university setting, and he would be standing on my left shoulder playing bass and watching, frankly, watching where my left hand was going to make certain that we landed on the same note together. That's how long. And then we spent time on the road together. 
but since all that, in the last 35 years, of course, our lives have gone apart. We've done different things. And pa- today, Patrick um, leads a ministry that some of you may recall. Patrick, your father-in-law is uh, a rather well-known man. Um, he was featured in a book called The Cross and the Switchblade. His own biography, Run Baby Run, was very well known across the country. Tell us about your father-in-law. Yes, my, my father-in-law is Nikki Cruz, who, as you mentioned, was uh, whose story was made known or made famous in those two books, plus the movie Cross and the Switchblade with Pat Boone and Eric Estrada. Nikki became a Christian in 1958. Um, he grew up in a family in Puerto Rico, 17 brothers, one sister. His parents were deeply involved in the occult. He describes them as his father was a satanic priest and his mother a witch. Um, he was number eight in that string of children. And for some reason, he was singled out uh, as the focus of abuse from his parents. So he suffered tremendously as a child. He would wake up uh, at the age of three and four years old in a room, dark, and he was, you know, his, he was just covered in blood and bruises, broken ribs. Um, and uh, he just suffered tremendous abuse and rejection and became, as you can imagine, uh, a very violent uh, and controllable child. And at the age of 15, his parents, couldn't control him. They sent him to New York City, where he had been groomed to uh, survive in that jungle in 1956 in New York. Um, New York was a jungle back then, still is in a lot of areas. And so he became, because of his uh, violent nature and complete uh, sociopathic tendencies, didn't mind violence, didn't mind the sight of blood, was used to to pain. He became a leader of a gang called the Mau Mau's. Um, and whose story, among others, was featured prominently in magazines at that time, uh, Look and Life magazines. And as you, as you recall from the movie and the book, probably, David Wilkerson, out in the middle of Pennsylvania, was reading a story about the gangs and the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, you got to go to New York. And after a series of encounters with David Wilkerson, uh, Nikki initially pushed him, cussed him out, spit at him, and, and, and beat him up. Wilkerson told him something that changed his life because all, up until then it was, you're no good. You're a son of the devil. I hate you. Um, there's no, you're not good. You're worthless. Now he's hearing this other voice that says, Jesus loves you. There's a God in heaven and loves you. And so he was tormented for weeks. He went to a crusade, a typical crusade in 1958 in the summer in New York city and the Holy spirit touched him and he was born again there instantly and was delivered. Of course, uh, discipleship is a long, lifelong process, but it, it, it's kept. You know, this is 1958, so this is over 60 years that uh, that this story has happened, and he's had the privilege to go around the world telling his story to multiple millions of people in uh, you know dozens and dozens of countries. So, I've been with him for 30 years. So, uh, Patrick, uh, how old is how old is Nikki Cruz now? Nikki's 81. Has written 18 books and is still traveling full time. Traveling full time at eighty one. He is, yeah. And so, I think the the secret behind him is he has a daily devotional life with his wife. They pray for an hour for friends and family. They read scriptures together. They pray. They cry. He's he describes it like this. He's never uh, forgotten what Jesus did for him, and he's romantically in love with Christ because of what he was saved from. So, how? I mean, so you're talking that's sixty more than sixty years ago since he converted. Um, that's a dramatic conversion, first of all. But to say then to come from that story and then 60 years later, you and your family, your wife, and um, what's the impact, first of all, personally on the family? And then I, I guess you could say globally after that. 
Yeah, so Nikki, uh, Nikki and Gloria, my mother-in-law, also um, is involved in the ministry for the last 30-plus years. She has gone into our local uh, juvenile detention centers weekly to conduct Bible studies. They both have a passion for souls. They love, um, they love reaching the lost, and because they both came out of um, uh, very deprived, poverty-stricken, abuse-ridden, uh, inner city environments. My mother's from Oakland originally, inner city Oakland. They met in Bible school. They both have this passion that has just not waned at all. They're, they're just, they continue to have this passion and this drive to, you know, with their last breath to talk to people, to reach people, especially young people with the, with the message of Jesus. And I love what you all are doing in Decatur. And that's, those are in the environments we love. Um, we also have the opportunity to go around the world. His autobiography is in over 50 languages now, Run Baby Run. Recently, we've translated it into Farsi, Arabic, uh, Armenian, and Georgian. We pass out thousands of copies for free for evangelism because we, we've received, I've, I've I personally read thousands of testimonies from people who've read that book and gotten saved. They, the Holy Spirit's touched them, most often in prison. These books, we've flooded the prisons with these books. Um, and, and people are touched by this story because, see, Nikki's story is not just a gang story. It's not an inner city story. It's a human story. It's a story of a young child looking for love, and it transcends cultures and language groups. And so the impact overseas and in different countries is huge to this day. So you could say the conversion of 58, it stuck. Yep. 58 was a classic year for Chevys and for... Uh, <laughs> beginnings of salvation and revivals and of course nikki and david wilkerson through the 60s the jesus people movement charismatic renewal movement in the catholic church they were front and center with uh you know for the, for those uh, parts of of uh of our culture and our history and um you know we're you know with he still wants to to reach the inner city he wants to reach youth because he remembers what it was like Patrick, you guys probably have a website where people could grab a hold of the story a little more completely and learn a little bit more. What's the website? It is NikkiCruz.org, N-I-C-K-Y-C-R-U-Z.org. Well, Patrick, thanks so much. Please give my regards to your family. And uh, I'm glad we get to see each other via Zoom. Perhaps we'll get a, a face-to-face someday in the near future. We'd love to. We have to catch up. Blessings to you and your church and what you all are doing. Thanks, Pastor Wayne. Bless you guys. You too. So friends, your story may not be as drastic as David's 3,000-year-old story. It might not be as drastic as Nikki Cruz's story that took such a dramatic turn in 1958. But here's what I'm quite convinced of. You can see your list of sins forgiven, and you can step into a mission-driven life. Friends, hear it again. You can see your list of sins forgiven, and you can step into a mission-driven life. And I would ask you, would you like to do that? Would you like to know of the forgiveness in Jesus Christ and step into a mission that he calls you to, to live your life for him each day? I'd like to pray with you to that end. Let's pray together. God, I pray for, for all of us. I pray, God, that each of us would experience the forgiveness that you offer in Jesus Christ. We look at the stuff that David did, and we hear the story of Nikki Cruz and realize, man, there, there are some really, really awful things that people do, people get involved in, and Lord, some of us have done that. We ask you for your forgiveness through Christ. And Lord, 
I pray for each person that's participating in this worship service today. I pray, God, may they know the forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. May, they, may each person simply say, God, have mercy on me. God, I ask for mercy. I ask for grace. I ask for forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, at that point, that person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, Lord, may each of us step into a mission-driven life. Or may we, may we wake up each morning with an understanding. We're going to look at life through how would Jesus do this? How could we be the tangible touch of Jesus in this moment and that moment? And how could we, maybe in a contemporary way, do what David said, that we would be able to speak to people who are far from you, language, biblical languages, transgressors. That seems hard in our world, God, but we pray that we would step into the lives of people who are in need of you, that we would have that mission-driven life because we are followers of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. God bless you today. We'll see you again.